Hi, welcome to More Life, the Reentry Podcast, a podcast about offender reentry, advocacy, and reform. I'm your host, Vinkedia Garner. Thank you for joining us today. So on today's episode, we have another individual that is a part of our resilient reentry segment. And this is a new segment that we introduced last time, but just to give you guys um a reiteration of what this segment is. Um, This segment is a special collection uh, along with our other collection, the Advocacy and Activism Collection. But this section specifically focuses on formerly incarcerated individuals and their journey once they are released from incarceration. And it really is just looking at the efforts that they're putting in to kind of transform their lives um, and just, you know, the successes that they've had, the resources and tools that have been beneficial or the things that have not been not necessarily not been beneficial but not easily accessible for them Um, and kind of going through this process with them and talking to them and using this segment as a way for them to have a voice and to be heard so today with me I have Mr. Jacob Bitters and Mr. Bitters is a 34 year old father Um, he has recently been released from incarceration um, but some of the I'm really going to let him tell his story more, but some of the things that I really wanted to point out is that he has a degree from Washington University. Um, He was able to attend Launch Code, and he works with the STL Reentry Collective, and if you haven't heard a couple of weeks ago, we had someone from the STL Reentry Collective on here, so that's who he works with, but without further ado, I really want Mr. Bitters to tell his story and for him to have the floor. Oh, hello. Thank you. So, yeah, uh, I think uh, you highlighted the, some important things. I think the what wasn't in there was the, the story of trying to be a father after incarceration. You know, uh, for one, missing out on my kid's life and not really being able to be there, you know, for support and love and, you know, to be a father, it puts a damper on, you know, trying to to come out and step into that role step into the role that they they need me to be but uh i am continuously striving and very soon actually in a couple of days my uh my kids are going to be visiting here for the first time in a very long time i'm really excited for it i also am uh getting my stepdaughter who i who i've actually been incarcerated her whole entire life she was born after i was uh locked up and uh, her father is not in her life. So stepping into like being a father role for her too. And uh, just trying to be the, the, the person that they can look up to and love, so. Yeah, I think that's great. Um, so you're, so your your kids are coming for the first time to where you are. You also are taking on this responsibility as a parent over another child. Um, that just sounds, that sounds great. And it sounds like, um, I don't, you're in a place to where maybe you're doing good. Would you say that? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. Uh, I'm already uh, working a uh, job that I love. I get to volunteer. Uh, like I said, well, like you talked about with the St. Louis reentry. I think the biggest thing with that is just feeling like I'm part of the community that I'm, you know, able to participate in actual like help the community in some way so that we could kind of start bridging the divide between what the community thinks about ex-incarcerated people and what's really going on you know uh 
so with that though, I, I have made a lot of connections through uh, PEP, which is the Prison Education Project at Washington University and uh, Launch Code. And I was able to, uh, through that, those organizations and STL reentry, we were able to raise close to $5,000 for me, you know, to have when I was uh, being released. Now that's not, that's something that not very many people get. Uh, that's something special. I haven't seen that in a very long time since I've been, you know, doing time. So I feel very truly blessed that these people have not only supported me, you know, with their time and effort and stuff like that, but they're putting their money where their mouth is and, you know, and they're investing in me to be the leader that they, they think that I can be, that they've seen me be while incarcerated and hope that I can be out here. So I, I I'm doing very well. Uh, I have my own apartment already. Um, I've gotten uh, all my furniture, went out and bought me a brand new TV for my birthday. Uh, I was able to spend close to $1,200 on plane tickets. So not only can my kids come visit me, but they can also go see their elderly grandmother. She's been having some health trouble and I wanna make sure that they get to see her this summer. Um, so yeah, I'm in a, in a very good place. You know, and I love to hear that. And shout out to STL Reentry Collective because they're doing exactly what you say. They're putting their, they're putting, I can't even remember the saying anymore, but they're investing in the people and they're investing in you guys and showing you guys that it is worth it and you can do it. And I, I really love that. Um, so I guess to really start this conversation, can, I want to reel it back a little bit, if you don't mind. Is that okay? That's all right. Yes. So could you could you just talk to us a little bit about your just your experience with the criminal justice system? Well, when I was uh, when I was 18 years old, my first experience with the criminal justice system was um, my mother and father, my uh, stepfather, Michael, uh, he was uh, addicted to drugs and he came and he was uh, abusive to my mother. And I remember thinking, I'll call the cops and they'll help this situation. So I, I remember calling the police for the very first time in my life. And I remember that the cops came there were very, you know, uh, they, they beat my stepfather up, you know, uh, arrested him, took him to jail, treated my mother like she was like the lowest scum of the earth for even, you know, having this person in their house didn't pay no attention to us kids while we, you know, cried and huddled in the corner, you know, wondering what just happened, you know, thinking that it's my fault that maybe it would have just went by, you know, maybe it would have just passed, you know, not really knowing if I had done the right thing, because obviously, you know, our lives just changed over one phone call. So then, you know, that was my first experience with the, the justice system and feeling like distrustworthy already, you know, and seeing the way that like people could just come into your house and assault you and like, you know, tear your family apart. So, you know, um, when I was a teenager, I rebelled a lot and I was into a lot of trouble and I was always very against the police because, you know, a lot of them had told me that they were trying to help me, trying to, you know, make this right, just trying to understand. And what they did is they used those things against me. To, to put me in jail. You know what I mean? So it wasn't that they were trying to help me. It wasn't that they were just trying to understand. 
No, they were actually gathering evidence to use against me. So that made me very like, like jaded against the criminal justice system from the very, very start. And then, um, um, so fast forward a little bit. When I was uh, 22 years old, I uh, was uh, struggling with drug addiction, struggling with alcoholism, uh, trying to be a father. I had, I had my first son when I was 15 years old. Uh, and uh, then I had another one a couple years later. And it was like just so much uh, pressure on me to, you know, raise a family with no education and no experience, no, no family support for real. And I did, uh, I turned to a life of crime, you know, because that was the easiest way for me to really support my family, except for working minimum wage jobs that obviously I could barely pay the bills with, you know what I mean? I didn't want to just barely pay the bills. I wanted my kids to have a nicer life than what I did growing up. So I, I turned to, you know, whatever I could to, in order to give them that. Unfortunately, that led me into uh, a lot of trouble. Uh, and I was incarcerated the first time when I was uh, 18 years old. So in that incarceration, I, uh, I seen some very, uh, very bad stuff. I actually got sent down to Bon Terre uh, and I seen people die. I seen uh, guys my age getting raped. I seen just the most traumatic stuff. Watch the cops turn a blind eye to things like that going on. I felt completely unsafe. Luckily, I was only there for, you know, I think less than a year and I got out of there. But that those experiences stayed with me for a really long time. When I got out, I realized that not, not only now do I not have an education, don't have any skills, no vocational training, but now I have a scarlet letter on me that says that I am a felon. Do not trust me. With that came not being able to find any kind, any kinds of work, you know, and it kind of set me up for, you know, to just continue down this path, or at least that's what I told myself. That's what I, you know, thought were my only options. I had never been told any different. So again, I, I uh, started selling drugs, started hanging around the wrong people and stuff like that. And it led me to being around the people that I ended up catching my uh, robbery with. So I, uh, <laughs> I met this guy through uh, a friend of mine and he was, uh, he was on the run uh, from the police already. He escaped prison uh, from uh, Oklahoma. And actually, he was supposed to be in prison for the rest of his life, but he was on the run. And I had had some uh, run-ins with the law for various things and stuff like that. And I guess through my those things and through my addiction and, and things like that, I was really paranoid. Thought that I had warrants myself. Thought that I was on the run, too. Plus, I had just had a brand new baby, one-month-old daughter. And my baby, my daughter's mom. Uh, had found herself incarcerated too. She was locked up. So uh, here I am, 22 years old, one month old daughter, two other boys that I can't really take care of. And I felt like I was desperate, desperate. At the time in 2011, um, we had just climbed out of a recession in 2008. Uh, it, it actually, it was pretty bad. Uh, it was very hard to even find minimum wage jobs at that time. Uh, so I found myself 
you know, desperate, no real alternatives, you know, and that led me to join this, this group of people that ended up, uh, we decided that we were going to, uh, rob some stores, uh, jewelry stores and things like that. Well, we never made it to jewelry stores. Uh, we, uh, ended up, uh, he convinced me to get ready for these robberies by robbing something simple, you know? So I, uh, he get, took me to a tobacco store and I, uh, gave me a gun and he's like, Hey, go in there and rob this place. And I'm like, I don't know. I can't go in there by myself. And he just, I don't know. He pressured me. And I was just such a young kid trying to just figure out what was going on. And he ended up convincing me to go in there and rob the store. Now I really felt like just desperate, just desperate. Like I ended up robbing the store and I just felt so terrible about what I had done. You know, this wasn't who I was, you know, but I felt so trapped, trapped in the situation. I couldn't really get out of it. Well, of course I was arrested. I was uh, sent to prison. I remember sitting in the county jail and thinking about, man, this could, uh, this could really be it. You know, my father and my grandfather are already in prison for the, you know, not getting out. And I thought now I had put myself in that same exact boat. I was never going home. And, uh, I just, I guess fell into this like terrible depression. You know, there's nothing like feeling like you've lost your life while you're still living. I mean, there's really anything, nothing like that, you know, there's nothing else like that feeling like your life was over while you were still alive and dwelling in that moment. So I sat in that moment for several, several months, um, uh, until, you know, I started to try to, my grandmother, actually, I hadn't contacted anybody in my family. I just kind of pushed everybody away. And I was like, well, I'm going to prison for the rest of my life. There's no point in making them suffer through this. Well, my grandmother, she kept reaching out to me and just telling me like, Hey, call me, please call me, call me, please call me. She'd come visit. I remember the first time she came visit it. She came to visit after all these phone, after these messages and stuff got to me letters actually. And, uh, so she comes up for a visit. She's like, okay, you don't want to answer. I'll be up here to visit. So they come and get me. And they're like, Hey, bitters, you got to visit. And I'm like, I ain't going to no visit, man. Leave me alone. You know what I mean? And that this, uh, CO was like, listen, man, that's your grandma out there. You need to get your ass up, go out there and at least tell her your damn self that you ain't coming out here. Be a man, man up. And I was like, you know what? You're right. I'm going to be a man. I'm going to go out there. My grandma took her time to come see me. Well, that was the start of my, my mentally coming back, you know, my grandmother had reached out to me and, uh, we had talked about this and, and this was a time where I felt like everybody had turned on me or abandoned me in some way. But, you know, reading my discovery, I actually realized that my grandmother had the most to lose and never, ever once told the police where I was or anything. She was always there helping. I was like, dang, my grandma is the only person that really had my back. I'm talking about straight gangsters, people that I thought were killers, people that I thought, you know, were ride to die. They all, all turned on me when it, when I was down out. My 80 something year old grandma that has everything to lose, you know what I mean? Houses, cars, businesses, everything. She told them, man, that's my grandson. I ain't telling you shit. And I was like, man, this woman really, 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 you know, she put herself on the line for me. I could at least go out there and talk to her. So she just prayed with me. I remember her praying with me 
through the glass, you know, putting her hands on the glass and just saying, you know, Jake, just accept Jesus Christ and he could heal you, you know? And I was like, man, I don't know about this Jesus Christ, dude. You know, like, uh, if God, if Jesus Christ is real, then my life has been hell since I was a little kid and I just don't understand it. And it's just really hard for me to, to accept this person that would allow this to happen to me while I was a child, you know? So anyway, I eventually started to, to, to think about this stuff and I started going to church and just started like kind of rebuilding myself. I, uh, I had started, uh, so I quit using uh, drugs at that time too. I was using while I was incarcerated at that time, but I was like, you know what? Drugs got me here. I don't need them. I'm going to just stop. I just remember thinking like, I don't need them, man. I, it's stupid. So I had quit using. Well, I, uh, was in there trying to, uh, do some things in the county jail, you know, trying to, uh, just figure out my court stuff and stuff like that. And I hit a kind of a wall because, my first plea offer was 50 years. So I, was, I remember thinking like 50 years at 85%, that's like 48 years. I'd be like 65 by the time I'd get out. And I was like, holy cow, my life's over, you know? And that was when I really, really, it hit me that I had done something just so terrible that, that, they were scared to even allow me a chance to be back out again, you know? And I was like, you know what, instead of getting down on myself and what I've done, I'm going to start trying to build myself up and, and trying to encourage other, the guys that are around me that still have a chance, you know, I'm trying to encourage them to change before something like what happened to me happened to them. And that was a turning point in my life for real. When I started thinking less about myself, and what I could have, what I could do, how I could help different people, you know, or I mean, what I could, how, how people could help me, you know, that's what I kept thinking is like, I don't have a chance. I need to do this. I'm, I'm, oh, pity me. I don't have an education, all those things. And that's what led me to doing what I did. And instead I started to focus on what I could do for the other people. And uh, that helped me all the way, you know, while in prison, I was a GED tutor. Uh, which was very, very, very good. I, I loved being a GED tutor. It was these guys, a lot of these guys that just never went to school. You know what I mean? Like I had guys that couldn't read. I had people that couldn't write. I had people with severe learning disabilities in my class. And, and it just reminded me of the times that education, you know, had let me down growing up, you know, uh, and it uh, completely, you know, if I wasn't one of their favorites, then I got pushed to the side. You know, I got, I got, even when I was interested in something, I didn't get no attention. So I, I remember thinking that and just being like, you know what, I'm not going to be one of those guys to these, these men that are pursuing their education. And I spent extra time with them. I'd sit out on the yard and study with them. And it just... It was so amazing to, to help so many men while I was in there, in that program. Well, a little while later, uh, I had a friend, Harvey Geller, who you guys uh, met in one of the other podcasts, and he was in my wing, and he was in a program, the Wash U PEP program, and he's like, hey, man, I think you should try this. And I was like, I don't know, man. Hey, college? Like, come on, man. 
I ain't no college student, you know. <laughs> I ain't no college student. He's like, no, I think you'd really enjoy this, man. I, I you know, it just push yourself. And he's like, uh, and there's a lot of people that could use your help in there. You know, you're a pretty good, uh, you know, role model and leader and you're articulate and you can help a lot of people. This is another program that you could help with. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I, he, he did convince me to give it a try. even though I didn't think that I would do very well in college. I was like, man, I barely got, you know I mean? Like I just got my GED and I'm like, man, I don't know. I'm cool. But anyway, so I actually did enjoy college and it was an opportunity to lead men. You know what I mean? And, and this also, this program also had a lot of men that, uh, so it kind of weeded out the people that were, you know, really trying to change their life and the people that were just there trying to pass time, you know, college isn't easy on the streets. It's even more so in prison. I know that a lot of people are like, Oh, you got nothing else to do, but yes you have to survive in there you have to be in a war zone you have to deal with people coming in your room tearing your stuff up like you have to deal with so much in there that college students out here don't have to deal with yes there's fewer distractions sort of but uh so yeah it was nice to be able to to join a program and then to realize what a college degree would mean to me moving forward i didn't even know i i'm the by the way, I'm the first generation college graduate in my family. I'm the first person in my family to, to have a degree. And uh, yes, amen, yes. So so I didn't know anything about what college could do. You know, I didn't, I didn't even know what opportunities could be opened up with this degree. You know, through PP and, and being educated and listening to people talk, I learned that education is the great mediator of things that have happened in my past, you know. Maybe I might just get back to even with my education and my criminal record, but even's better than where I was before, you know? So, and that's what kind of helped me propel myself, not just to be a student at WashU, but I was a teaching assistant for four uh, semesters worth of classes while I was in there. I got to work with some of the best professors in the whole entire country and really learn what it meant to be a teacher and leader of men. So the opportunities that I was able to gain while I was there were just, I mean, priceless. You know what I mean? Like I, I would have never got that experience anywhere else. I don't think, you know, so for, so as I was about ready to get out of prison, which I was in there for 11 years. So it took me a while. I spent three and a half years in the County jail. And then the other time I was at uh, Missouri Eastern Correctional Center here close to St. Louis in Pacific, Missouri. While I was there, you know, I spent half of that time in, in uh, uh, the prison education project, four years, a little over four years. And I uh, recently graduated uh, with my associate's degree. I have a 3.9 GPA. I'm I'm a member of Alpha Sigma Lambda Honor Society. I, and most importantly, I graduated with every single one of my classmates standing and applauding at a speech that I was able to give and a speech that I was able to, you know, write to them about breaking through barriers. Um, uh, I think you guys probably know uh, Dr. Stanley and Therese. He's a He's a doctor uh, that was formerly incarcerated. He uh, operator of uh, prison to professionals, P2P. 
um, he was able to come in and speak at the graduation where Harvey had graduated a couple of years before our graduation. And he just changed my whole entire life and what I thought about, like what I could become. You know, I'd always thought that, oh, I can't be a lawyer. I can't be a doctor. I can't do this. I can't do that. You know, I have a felony that's going to stop me. That's going to prevent me from doing all these things. So like, I better learn like a trade school so that I can at least make a little bit of money because I have a skill, you know. And I learned through Dr. Andres that, that that is not true, that with perseverance and hard work and education, that doors just seem to open back up, you know, and that everything that we've been told about what we can't do or what we can't become is all really a lie. What it does mean is that we have to work, you know, 10 times as hard as the next person. That's okay life has prepared me to be a hard worker life has prepared me to be resilient life has prepared me to grow with the punches when everything seems like it's down so there's nothing else that that really could prepare me for this situation any more than the life that i had lived already so i looked at that and as i was uh getting ready to be released i i, I gave a speech to that effect and also knowing that i had uh Harvey and the St. Louis reentry behind my back, you know, had my back and that they had raised the money for me to get my own place, to have a little bit of money to pay some rent ahead of time, to get furniture. Uh, I had all my furniture donated by a grad student who was leaving St. Louis. He had just graduated, uh, Russell. Uh, he was amazing. He left me like basically a whole furnished apartment, you know, what I mean? like the whole everything to furnish my apartment. So I got out with like, just feeling so blessed and feeling like this community has done so much for me that I just want to do something back. I actually spent my first evening free at a St. Louis reentry meeting. So I was at, spent Tuesday, I got out Tuesday, May 31st, and they were like, hey, we're having a meeting, you want to come? I'm like, dude, for sure, wouldn't miss it for the world. So I spent that meeting, uh, I spent that evening, my first evening free, I spent it in the St. Louis reentry. And since then, I have uh, been able to take over uh, the communications department for St. Louis reentry. So with my tech background, I was in Launch Code, by the way. I, so Launch Code is a nonprofit started by Jim McKelvey, the owner of Square, so that we could bring tech uh, experience to the St. Louis area. There's a lot of tech jobs that just aren't being filled right now because they don't have enough people with those skills. So we started Launch Code and it's a free program, really, really great program. And it's a 28 week course that teaches you the basics of, of how to be a programmer, be a web developer. So um, through that experience, I uh, have started uh, taking on more roles at the St. Louis Reentry, you know, dealing with our uh, web page, dealing with our communications, uh, our Gmail, all of our accounts, our phone, uh, because for real, for a long time, for the last two years, uh, this has all been on Harvey, kind of doing it himself with some uh, some grad students from WashU that were, you know, volunteers that helped some, but they don't. They're so amazing. I'm so happy for them uh, uh, and what they've been able to volunteer and help this, uh, this program. However, what they don't have is the passion, the drive that only comes with being experienced, you know, having this experience happen in your life. You know, 
Harvey and I and the other uh, uh, incarcerated, uh, ex-incarcerated people that are in there uh, have a, a willpower and drive to make this program actually reach out into the community. You know, uh, I think uh, me and Harvey, we have plans for so many things where we can integrate not only for reentry of in, uh, justice involved people, but also there's a huge homeless population that also like uh, intersects justice in, involved because uh, justice involved people are so much more likely to be homeless and to be jobless. So we're going to reach out into the community and see how many of these people, you know, that are that are hurting and struggling are justice involved. And even if they're not justice involved, we want to start helping in that area, too. So this is where uh, our uh, this is where our program kind of has its focus. A lot of programs help uh, men with housing and IDs and, you know, your basics needs and stuff like that. There's a lot of reentry programs that uh, our program actually wants to start dealing. Those programs only have a 50% success rate. Let's be honest. The recidivism rate is still very high in Missouri. Those programs, even with picking and choosing who they deal with, still can only report a 50% success rate. Half of the people that go through their program are still going back to prison. So we've decided that there has to still be something wrong. Has to be. We're missing something. We don't, we're not positive what it is, but we, we know that we're still missing something. So part of what our program is trying to do is to, 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 to deal with the trauma, the trauma that happens while we're incarcerated. A lot of people have yet to deal with their trauma. I'm not going to lie. I still haven't quite dealt with my trauma. I'm looking for a therapist as we speak, you know, uh, so that I can start dealing with my trauma and finding a, a, a therapist that can actually deal with this trauma is also hard. There's not a, I haven't found that I know of anyone that specializes in trauma treatment for ex-incarcerated people. You know, there's no specialist that I can go to. Um, and we have a unique sort of trauma. The only thing that I could even compare it to is being in a war zone and not just going there for a tour of duty, but going there for 11 years. And then while in there, you're not allowed to deal with that trauma. So you just kind of push it off and you harden yourself and you walk away and you just keep letting it build. Well, when you walk out that door, that's all gone. You're free. And you actually have to start dealing with these issues. Like it hits you all at once, however long you've built it up. So there's a real need for real trauma specialists. Trump, people that have, you know, know what's going on. And I don't know if there is, and I hope that I can find one. We're looking for it now. We have some ideas about how to kind of deal with trauma. But another part of this is, is learning how uh, to re integrate into the community you know when you get out at first it's hard to even go into a store i remember i, I my first shopping trip i had a panic attack sitting there and i was trying to decide what type of hamburger to get you know they got the logs they got the the platters they got frozen stuff they got unfrozen stuff there's this and it was silly because you know i could have picked any one of them and I was like, oh, I also want to know, like, oh, this is like $3 a pound or this is like two sixty. So I'm not only trying to figure out which one I want, but I'm also trying to, like, figure out how much I can, you know, spend. And it was like, 
just so overwhelming that I sat there and literally started having a panic attack. Luckily, I surrounded myself with very supportive and caring people. And a friend of mine, uh, she's like, hey, listen, you can pick whatever one you want. This is a part of life. You learn to make mistakes. You can choose it. And if you don't like it next time, you don't get that one. You know, she's like, you know, this is just you just got to select one and figure out what you want. And I was like, you know what? You're right. That's all I got to do. I just have to do it. But we're so scared of making a mistake. You know, right when we get out, you're like, oh, man, this is a mistake because our mistakes have been so magnified. Like every mistake you've made is like just like pounded into your head over and over and over. We don't become a person that's being re rehabilitated in prison, we become a list of mistakes and you get hounded over it. You get told of these mistakes and now you get out and they're like, Oh, put all these mistakes on your resume and, and tell, talk to everybody about every mistake you've made in your whole entire life. And let's just, let's harp on all these mistakes. So it's, it's not over with, I'm still dealing with every mistake that I've made since I was a juvenile delinquent. That's a part of my life now. So not sure where I was going with that, but, <laughs> but yeah, I surrounded myself with good people that just were like, Hey, you, you're going to make these mistakes. These mistakes aren't that big of a deal. You are going to learn back how to shop, how to pay bills, how to be a productive member of society. And that's fine through that. You're going to make some mistakes. And I was like, it really helped me. Another part of what St. Louis Reentry uh, wants to do is is to to that part of us rejoining the community. So we need to have a sense of purpose, a sense of like not only are we rejoining the community, but we're helping the community, and that's what the St. Louis Reentry uh, gives uh, returning offenders is we're going to uh, have opportunities for people to uh, do some community building. We're thinking about getting a uh, some uh, uh fentanyl testing strips some uh so that we could pass them out in the community along with uh narcan and potentially some uh, uh help out at some needle exchanges and stuff like that so that we could help the drug addicts and things like that um we're not so jaded about people using we know that that's the, an illness that they're dealing with and that people are going to use we want to help we want to help them use healthy. We don't want them getting diseases and stuff like that. Oh, or dying. You know, this fentanyl is literally killing millions of people. And a lot of these people don't even know that they're using fentanyl. They're using something else, another substance. So we'd like to pass those out, pass out uh, Narcan, pass out things to these communities that are, are still dealing with this uh, epidemic because a lot of them are us. And through that, we're also going to be able to reach out to these people and say, hey, not only are we here to try to help you be healthy and safe, but we also have this program that has a giant list of resources and we have connections that we can give you that can help you get out of this situation. All you have to do is be you know, willing to, to, to reach out to us and we'll connect you with the right people. St. Louis Reentry has... Uh, put out, we're redoing our uh, resource guide for returning people. Uh, we're in the process of doing that as we speak. And we're also making a, a documentary. Harvey's uh, uh, making a documentary called Our Time that highlights a lot of the, the men that have come out 
of prison that are, you know, dealing with a whole lot. And it highlights their stories and what they've had to deal with. So there's a lot that uh, we're doing. And what that has done is really given uh, people like me and the other men that are in our group a sense of purpose. Like we are doing something good for us in our communities. And it's been, I mean, it's been great. It's been able to help propel me out of the trauma and depression and just everything that I've been able to, you know, having to deal with for the last month uh, to where not only am I doing good, but I'm thriving. So I, I can not give enough thank you to Harvey and uh, the professors that are also in our collective and the volunteers and all the grad students that worked ahead, you know, for this program ahead of, uh, of me and just everything that, that has really went into me being where I am today. My family, my loved ones that have returned in my life and started uh, realizing that I had changed my life and wanted to be, you know, the person that they always thought that I could be, you know, so I want to thank all those people. So. Oh, wow. That was, that was great. Um, I, I feel like I don't even have to ask anything because <laughs> you've highlighted it all for us. And I think that is great. And you've hit, you hit a couple of things, like of things that I was going to ask, but it seems as if from what I heard, and I heard a lot, uh, just social support has been really important. Um, and it can look different, whether you're, you're, you're getting social support from, you know, these organizations, also from your family, um, different professors and people are kind of motivating you, um, you know, to kind of have that sense of purpose, of purpose of what you were talking about. Um, I also heard addressing trauma, um, that I do think, and like you said, a, a really important point of like, when we're talking about substance uses, people are going to use. And the goal is not necessarily to cease all use, but to like healthy use, um, because we know that that's not always possible. But a lot of the times people are struggling with some more deeply rooted issues, and that could be trauma. And that's an area that is not being addressed. So addressing trauma is something that I'm hearing from you. Um, what did I say? Social support, um and then there was sense of purpose and then there was something else like that you talked about like earlier on um I know community investment was in there and uh there was something we that you mentioned it was very early on though oh education oh yes is, is a part that is these are kind of things that you that have shown up in your life that have been beneficial uh to help you through this process and it sounds great. It sounds like you're thriving. And um, I really love that. And I'm looking forward to all the things that, you know, the rest of your journey, what STL is also doing. Um, But I do have one question, if that's okay. Yes. So you highlighted a lot for us, but if you could just, what advice would you give formerly incarcerated individuals who are going through this same process? Surround yourself with people that are, I want to say givers, people that are, are beneficial to you, that are trying to help you. You know, a lot of times, you know, this is my second time trying to do this. And before I had all these people that needed me 
to help them. I don't want to call them takers, but in a sense, you have to give to them, you know, and I had surrounded myself, you know, my whole family, uh, a little bit about my family. I'll just touch on it just a little bit, but my stepfather, Mike, who raised me, who I talked about a little bit earlier in my story, uh, he was uh, killed by the uh, uh, Kansas City Police Department. He was shot 12 times uh, for brandishing his finger like a, a gun. So either A, the cops are, I don't know, uh, just wanted to kill him, or B, he was trying to commit suicide. I don't really know what it was. I wasn't there. I can't really speak on that. But he's gone now. You know, he's dead. Um, my mother is, uh, she's dealing with uh, schizophrenia, really bad. She has really bad delusions and she's homeless and she's just not in a very good spot in life right now. Um, and my brother also is homeless, just got out of prison and is back using uh, again. And I really hope to, to, to try to be a role model and help him try to guide him in this process. But it's hard not being there, but I know that not being there right now is, is the best thing for me because I've decided that I have restarted my life, moved to another city. You don't have to do that, but if you can't surround yourself with people that are trying to better you, you know what I mean? People that you can call and be like, Hey man, I need to write to work. If you can't, surround yourself with people that are there for you like that, then you have a hard time. If you're trying to take care of your kids, your baby mama, your family, your mom, your brothers, your cousins, whatever it is that you're trying to put on yourself right when you get out, it's, it's, it's detrimental to you. So what I can say is that in order to really be there for those people, like I want to be, I want to be there for my mother and my brother and my, the people that are alive that I want to, to help. But I've decided that I've been gone 11 years and they've survived through those 11 years. I need to spend the next year or two years getting myself into a position so that I can actually make real changes in their lives. I want to be able to get my mom a house. I can't do that if I spend the next year and a half trying to take care of every little problem that comes up in her life. You know, if I, if I take care of her car right now, if I, if I try to help her get a little place, uh, you know, if I do this and I do that and I keep doing that for my brother and my cousins and everybody that's around, then I can't ever get to a spot to where I can actually make substantial changes in their lives. So what I'm, my focus is, and maybe hopefully it helps somebody else, is that I'm going to take the time to work on myself by myself. I have very little bills. I don't have very much responsibility. I don't eat a whole lot. So I can actually take this time, save money and prepare myself so that I can actually make change in their lives and help them. Sometimes it feels selfish. Sometimes it feels like I'm not, you know, dealing with, you know, my family, not dealing with the people that need me. But I know that I do have to be selfish right now, that I have to focus on myself. I got to finish school gotta get a good job i gotta i gotta do a lot of stuff for myself first but with that i'm going to be building a life that i can do something good maybe my mom needs a car maybe my brother needs you know you know first and last month's rent for a apartment or something like that things that i'll be able to do later on in life if i focus on myself so really my only advice is, is to be selfish
to focus on yourself, to surround yourself with people that are helping, not taking, and to just persevere, just to stay with it each and every day. I mean, and that's the only way that you can make it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it kind of reminds me of that. You have to show up for yourself before you can show up for other people. That's very much what what it sounds like. Yes. Okay. I like that. Um, I love that. And I hope like that advice is useful to people out there. Um, And it seems like it's very, it's very applicable in your life and it's working well. Um, I do want to thank you for coming on the show and, you know, sharing your experience with us, uh, giving that advice and things like that. Um, And I want to give you the floor to if there's any last things that you want to say or anything like that. I, I just want to shout out uh, um, Weber's Bar and Grill. Um, Bob Weber, he, uh, you know, took a flyer on a guy that, you know, was just getting out, you know, no real experience, you know, and he didn't care. He said, heck, come work. <laughs> and I also want to shout out, uh, uh, we've already shouted out St. Louis Reentry, but the things that they're doing in the community is amazing. Uh, Washington University, um, the support that we have at WashU is incredible. I mean, just incredible. From the professors all the way, the chancellors and the, the grad students, uh, the chancellor and the grad students that, that volunteer you know, all their time to come out and tutor and stuff out there at MECC. I, I want to shout out all my uh, guys that are still locked up. Those guys are dealing with inhumane conditions every day. If you want to know more, you can join our website, St. Louis Reentry uh, Resources.org. Um, you can also join our on Facebook and Twitter, uh, St. Louis Reentry. Uh, just and uh, and, and look, and we'll be highlighting some of the things that are still going on in Missouri in Missouri prisons. Um, hopefully, uh, you can join us, and hopefully, we see you there. That's it. All right, thank you. So, without further ado, as always, you guys, thank y'all for listening with us today on More Life the Reentry Podcast. Um, and if you are interested in learning more, like he said, follow all of those pages. They will be listed in the description box, and always. Don't forget to push the subscribe button for More Life the Reentry Podcast and follow us on Instagram at More Life the Reentry Podcast. And thank you.